Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from the computer scientist who founded the World Wide Web 30 years ago. He tells us what he's proud of, what he thinks has gone wrong, and what he is doing to help fix some of those problems. It's a project to give everybody complete control of their own data. Now that means we have to change the technology so that when you run an app, if it's a solid compatible app, the first thing it will do is it will ask you where you want your data stored. That was Tim Berners-Lee talking about SOLID, a project he founded with researchers at MIT to reshape the web by giving individuals the means to store and share their own data. I want to start, Sir Tim, by taking you back 30 years to your desk at CERN, where, to simplify greatly, you invented the World Wide Web. Did you have any idea at that time of the impact that your invention might have? Well, I didn't have any idea that the project would be so successful, and I was intensely aware of all the hundreds of ways in which it could fail at every point, and I had to spend a lot of time just fighting to make sure each failure didn't happen. But on the other hand, I did design it to be universal, so that the idea of the design was that it should be able to allow anything. I didn't imagine that everything would be on it, but it was designed so you could put anything. And in a way, it's that universality which has led to it end up to have a ridiculous amount of stuff on it. What do you think the greatest benefits have been? Ah, I think, I suppose, in general, if you step back and look at what are the benefits we want to have from it, I've always felt that mankind, humankind, I should say, has always, since it started to communicate at all, tried to solve the problems of what do we communally believe and what are we communally going to do? And for those, we end up with the process of science for what do we believe, and we end up with the process of democracy for what do we do. And so, in a way, if the web can help those two, those have been, in a way, the most basic requirements, and, of course, cat pictures as well. <laughs> um, now, some people have compared the invention of the web with the introduction of the Gutenberg press in the 15th century, which helped bring about a renaissance, really. Do you think that the web is bringing about a second renaissance today, just because of this information revolution that has come about? I think it certainly made a huge change in the way that society works and the way democracy works. I don't think necessarily you can compare it too much with the original Renaissance. I think the interactivity, you know, the goal of the web was that it should be a read-write space. I think both had dramatic effects on the way civilization could evolve. But the idea of the web is very much that it should be participatory, whereas printing has been a dissemination medium and TV has been a dissemination medium. So we've seen a lot of dissemination media before the web, really, it was only sort of bulletin boards and dial-in and list servers and things like that, which would allow people to communicate as peers. So the hope of the web was originally, I think, among the people who were excited about it early on in the first few years in the early 90s, was that it would be very much a, an enabling thing for individuals. It would allow everybody to publish on a level the same level as the newspapers and everybody to criticise and everybody to be able to make their own list of great things on the web and for that list to compete with all the other lists out there and so on. And that was that was the hope. But I mean the fact that anyone with an online connection can have access pretty much to all of the world's public knowledge is still 
pretty mind-boggling concept, isn't it? What do you imagine the consequences of that will be? Well, I'd hoped that the consequences would have been already that people would just, out of sheer human curiosity and interest, learn to more and more explore people who are not like them and end up chatting with and communicating people with different cultures, people with different religions and different languages and different countries. And so I'd hoped that the result of having access to all of this would mean that the pre-web world of nations fighting each other would quietly dissolve in a sort of John Lennon style, John Perry Barlow style way, imagine a world with no nations and global peace and harmony. But that didn't happen. It was clear that even when kids have an opportunity of playing video games with anybody in the world, they end up playing video games with the person that sits right next to them. So it turns out that human beings seem to be much too happy and content to sit within their own tribes. And the social networks to date haven't yet extracted them from the comfortable sort of oyster shell to make them go on to communicate with other people of different tribes. Now, you've also been very critical in criticising many of the bad things that have happened online. To what extent do you think this stemmed from an original design flaw or has it simply been hijacked by bad actors? I think... There are some bad actors, but when you look at all the things which I think your readers will typically be aware of going wrong with the web, they actually fall into a number of different categories. So some of them are simple. When you look at a cyber attack by a nation state, or when you look at a scam by a criminal tracking some old person's savings, then you know that's straightforward crime, and it's crime that we've seen offline being applied sometimes more effectively online. But it's not all about crime. There's a whole school of thought of advertising being the original sin of the internet because we have advertising out there. In fact, advertising has led to people building websites which will always end up not serving the users, always trying to distract the users. And because they're designed to distract the users into buying other things, the web will always be suboptimal while it's based on advertising. So that's one way in which things can go wrong. And another way in which things go wrong are, for example, when you build an encrypted communication system and then you realize, in fact, it's been used to start genocide in one particular country and then you sort of step back and think wow we thought we were doing the right thing by giving people their privacy they use that privacy in order to create a fake wave of anger based on false premises and so on and people have ended up dying so in those cases it's complicated you can't just blame one social network you can't blame one government you can't blame the spirit of humanity out there and just write it off write off people as just being nasty you have to look at the whole system and you have to maybe do research so that you step back and run simulations of social networks under different circumstances and wonder whether changing the way the law works in that country, changing the way the social network happens to work in different ways, how does the retweet work, what colour is the like button, what other options do you have, this sort of thing. In fact, maybe there are ways in which tweaking the technical design can prevent that sort of thing happening, but it's not obvious you can't point to one group who are responsible for having let the world down it's much more us having to be responsible for understanding humanity when it's connected by technology and the very complex structures which we're seeing the complex interdependencies and so on which we see inside the social networks you were talking about those complex interdependencies. I mean, it is phenomenal, all the interactions between all of those different elements that you're talking about. Do you think we really do need a new academic discipline of web science? Yes. You know, we've been talking about that for more than 10 years because 
You're looking at the stability of a system where the psychology of an individual makes them click on one link or another. It's the psychology of an individual which makes them retweet something or make a link from one place to another. But it's very much the economics which determines how the large websites work. And to a certain extent, it's the economics which makes a person work in a particular way on the web. And so you need economics, you need psychology. It's not just computer science. You need the mathematics of large systems. In a way, you can imagine that some of the tools we need to use for analysing climate change, when we see that there's a social climate change out there on the web, that we need similar sorts of tools for analysing that. So yes, web science is about bringing multidisciplinary tools to bear to do this analysis. Some of the first web scientists, I'm afraid, have been playing their I told you so cards, because the first web science conference documented how people in election were being manipulated in advance of the more recent ones. And so they look back at what happened with Facebook being manipulated in the Trump election and say, yep, that's exactly what happened before. And for example, the Martha Coakley election, we've seen that. So the web scientists were aware of a lot of these things, but we haven't managed to put that together with governments to then realize how a little bit of a regulation here or a change in attitude there can actually tweak it so those things didn't happen. You have been fighting for a number of years with the World Wide Web Foundation to try to reclaim a lot of the original promise that you were talking about when you founded the web. And you've also issued this contract for the web. Could you tell us what that is and what you're hoping to achieve with that? Well, as we've seen, the situation is complicated. It requires different things to be done by different actors. It requires companies to be responsible and to tweak things in certain ways and governments to be responsible and to tweak things in different ways. And so the contract is about governments, companies and individuals, consumers, citizens, each of those three groups having a responsibility to make sure that they work with the other two groups to make the web a better place. Understanding that because of the complexity, they all three have to work. People need to put their effort into supporting an open web, but they want to do it understanding that the government will protect net neutrality so that all of their efforts to create wonderful new networks will be available from anybody who wants to access them, for example. So the contract for the web is about nine principles. Those nine principles are easy to write on the wall. We've kind of done that before. We've written them on placards and we marched down the street. But now the contract for the web is, to a certain extent, more hard work. It's about getting each of these communities to sit down together and agree together on what they will do, on specific guidelines for specific commitments that will be made so that the way the web works will change. And all of these communities will, of course, together benefit from a very much more functional web in the future. And who has signed the contract? We have France, we have Germany, we have Ghana. Two very large social networks have signed it. We've got public companies, we've got 200 organisations and 5,000 individuals in three countries. And it's not over yet. We launched it in Lisbon at the Web Summit because that was a place with a nice lot of energy to get people, in particular the web developer community, who is, of course, passionate about this, involved. But people have come across the contract in various different contexts and have joined in. And the idea is that you know, the contract is not written in stone yet. It's very much a question that really by joining the contract for the web, you join the group of people who work out what the actual commitments will be, which means in some cases writing down a freedom, you know, more bandwidth, cheaper, and things which are easy. In some cases, really difficult things like working out where you draw the line between free speech and hate speech 
and things like that. Right. Now, after 30 years, about half the planet is connected to the web, which means we've still got more than 3 billion people to connect. Many of those live in the poorest and the most remote parts of the world. How do we go about best connecting the rest of the planet? Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. It's a very good question, and it's easy to get carried away trying to make sure that the 50% who are online uh, have the web we want. But every time we make the web that the haves have better, we increase that darn digital divide. We further relatively disadvantage everybody who's not connected. So yes, this is important. It's amazing that we've got to 50%. There was a certain feeling that we get to 50% because of people getting online with mobile devices. You know, large chunks of sub-Saharan Africa would come online and so on. What is interesting is that the rate at which people are coming on has actually dropped a little bit. The 50-50 moment was in fact postponed by several months. So there's a concern that it's now flipping. It's a very exciting point. It's flipping from being a sort of exponential growth to an exponential tail-off. We're just at the flip between the two exponentials in the S-curve. So it's an exciting time. Certainly, at the moment, the first priority is making sure that everybody benefits from that existing momentum. The limiting thing has been cost. When we started, when we had 20% of the world online, it was about the cost of a phone and the cost of a data connection. Now the cost of a phone, thankfully, as we hoped, has sort of disappeared from the equation. It's relatively not so important because you know, phones get cheaper. The cost of a data connection, however, has not disappeared. So we have this alliance which has been working for years now with countries, with companies, to make sure that the conditions are right in each country for the on-ramp price, the price for your basic data plan and the basic mobile broadband, which will allow you to have a video interview with the prospective employer for that job that you want in another country. We have this one-for-two goal. We felt that you should be able to get one gigabyte of data for 2% of your monthly income. And we were very happy that the one for two goal that the Web Foundation started also has been adopted by the UN Broadband Commission. And so partly having that goal out there means that each country can go on and look at its own figures. And to a certain extent that gives internal ammunition for our people in the ministries there and in the companies there, gives them something to aim for. Of course, you're a journalist, you've looked at numbers like this all your life and you realise that the mean can be very deceptive. So when you look at an individual country and they say, oh, great, half of them online, obviously it's going to be the half that are living in the cities. It's going to be the half that are well off. And so I think at the moment we're looking very much at one for two. We're looking at trying to get the bulk of people on board. That's where we're going to get the bulk of the value for humanity. Then after a while it will flip. We'll get to the point where... Most of sub-Saharan Africa has got 3G and then later 5G pretty much everywhere. 
and a very large number of people can afford access. And so it may be that to a certain extent there will be places where education and literacy, literal literacy and digital literacy will become issues. So we might need to move the emphasis. And also down the line, we'll be looking at alternative ways of getting physical connectivity, internet connectivity into rural areas using things like low earth orbit satellites and so on. So that as we get nearer the 100%, then we're expecting different challenges out there for the internet world to get connectivity to those people. But yep. from the Web okay. Foundation point of view, it's very much the case that the awareness is as more and more people get connected, when we get to the point that 80% of the people are online, then mitigating the situation for the other 20% will become more and more important because more and more governments and more and more companies will just assume you're online and just not provide more. Fewer and fewer services will be available to people who are not online. And uh, yep. obviously that gets a greater urgency. Yep. Now, there was a very interesting paper that came out recently by Wendy Hall and Kieran O'Hara on the four internets, they called it. They were describing the emergence in a way of a splinter net, that there was the original internet that was open and free, as in your original vision of it. We then have the commercial internet that's emerged, which is where the big companies have taken over and sought to use it as a playground for commercial advantage. There's the bourgeois internet, as they described it, which is the more regulated European version of the internet. And then the Chinese internet, which has a very different vision of what the internet should be about. And I think their argument was that we are moving increasingly into a world of the Chinese internet. A lot of the three billion people coming online will be more familiar with that form of the internet than the other three. Do you think that's right? And if so, what are the consequences of that? I think, you know, I said from the beginning of the web, I've always been worried about the hundred things that can go wrong at any moment. Balkanization of the web has always been a threat, yes. And since the Great Firewall of China is the poster child for balkanization of the internet, but it happens, in fact, in all kinds of places and lots of places which tend to get ignored as it gets snuck in by a government taking more and more control. Yes, the current environment seems to be one in which governments seem to think that they can get away with it to a larger and larger extent. I don't know whether it's the example set by China that's led it off. They may justify it because of cybersecurity attacks from other nation states. Now, there's a good example of a good reason to justify to your citizens that you're throwing a protective firewall around against them, uh, even though, in fact, that protective firewall will protect them from reading the truth about what's happening outside your country. So, yes, I think it is worrying. We will see. We're not looking at you know, random freak weather storms here when we look at internet organisation. We're looking at policies which have been put in place by governments and governments who govern people. And there is a question about what people will and will not put up with. There's also some interesting economic questions about whether a country which doesn't have complete connectivity, whether there are people who really can't find out what the true state of the world is, whether those people will be effective in the market. And so, therefore, whether the country will be affected economically. So it may be that countries like China find that they have to become more and more open in order to be able to trade. And it may be that as more and more people learn to speak English, for example, it may be that when lots of people understand English and there's lots of English media around, it may be very hard to keep something secret when people will have to travel for business more and more and so on. So you could make models which would explain why the balkanization will fade and we would look back at it as a bad dream. And you could look at models whereby you end up with the dystopia that Wendy and Kieran described. We have to see part of the contract for the web involves actions by governments to not balkanize the internet.
And what can ordinary people, our listeners, do to preserve the open and free web as you originally envisaged? Well, talk to the politicians that you're thinking of electing about these questions. Find out whether they understand them. Find out whether they'll be prepared to insist that their own government pushes for the open internet. Obviously, it's partly a question of getting your government to make sure that your own internet is unfettered. But it's also when governments meet, putting pressure on other governments to do so, making it part of other packages like trade packages and so on. So one of the things we need is education of people in political spaces. And sometimes you find a minister of digital who is brilliantly aware of these things and incredibly well-versed. And sometimes you find a minister of telecommunications who doesn't understand how important it is and has been brought up in more of a sort of a telephone world. Who would you say really gets what's going on? Currently, France has got a pretty good minister for digital. He's a great force for the good. And of course, Aaron Matt Hancock, when he was in DCMS and now he, he's in NHS, also he brings a lot of passion for doing the right thing with the internet to each place he goes. Right. Finally, I'd like to just touch on your project SOLID, uh, which you've been developing for a while at MIT. And this really aims to reinvent the web in the sense of giving people far more control over their own data. Could you just tell us what you're hoping to achieve with SOLID and how you're going to operationalise it having launched Inrupt? Okay, so uh, here's what SOLID is. SOLID is a project, it's a protocol, it's a way of using web technology in a slightly more specific way. We're adding a few more protocols to the protocol stack. So it uses things like HTTP and HTML and so on, just as the web does. But it's a project to give everybody complete control of their own data. And that means we have to change the technology so that when you run an app, if it's a solid, compatible app, the first thing it will do is it will ask you where you want your data stored. And you will have a number of data stores. They will be sort of private clouds. If you're a geek, you can run a private cloud on your own computer at home. You can fire up a Mac Mini and download the software and run your little private cloud there. You might decide that a company like Dropbox or Google will run your solid pods, or your bank might be the person you trust to store some of your data. But you'll have a number of pods, and whatever app you run, the app will store the data there. And the idea is it'll store it there in a standard way, so that if you use one app for taking photographs, for example, and you might use another app for making a slideshow, and then your kids, when they're looking at the slideshow on their phones, they may use a completely different app. But all those different apps share the data, and all that data is stored in compatible solid pods. And these solid pods have the property that you can share anything with everybody. So you can go to your medical information and share it with your doctor, but also you can share your medical information with your cousin. And you can share a picture that you took of your knee at the weekend with your doctor, because those are the things that you need to do. So to a certain extent, solid is about first order, it seems to most people, to be, oh, great, it gives me my privacy, turns the privacy world right way up, it gives me control of all my data so I can keep it from everybody else. But to second order, when you really look at how it's going to be used, the excitement is the power of being able to run apps which use the shared data, so collaborative apps, apps which allow you to do productivity things at home and with the family, be able to do scientific projects and collaborations and software projects, and in general to collaborate with groups by sharing different access to different sorts of data with whoever you like. So it's very exciting. It was developed at MIT as the solid project at MIT, and now we have a startup called Inrupt, I-N-R-U-P-T, inrupt.com. And Inrupt 
it's a commercial company, but its first effort is to help create this really wonderful version of the solid ecosystem by helping people build all the servers, build all the apps, build all the various different tools and development kits and so on. So it's exciting for me to be working with a startup. And I think it's exciting for Inroute to have this role of really promoting solid, making solid happen, and then down the road finding various different business models by which it will be able to pay the rent. And do you think this clean web, if I can call it that, is going to grow up alongside the other forms of the web, or do you think it will eventually supersede it? Uh, both. It will grow up quietly. It will grow up quietly among people. First, maybe uh, developers who are excited about technology will start to use it. Maybe some particular community of people who have particular needs to be able to coordinate staff and share staff, or who have particular privacy needs. And then it'll start within those particular early adopter communities, and then it will grow quietly. It'll get passed from person to person. Whereas they realise that as the different communities that they're involved in in their life get into solid, then suddenly they get to be able to use more and more powerful apps across their whole lifestyle. And bit by bit, over many years, we will find that the bulk of the functionality of everything that people do online is actually being done in solid compatible spaces. Well, you've got a lot of work for the next 30 years, Tim. But uh, thank you very much for this interview. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode was produced by Fiona Simon.